If you've ever not known how to respond to a pro-choice argument for abortion, this episode is for you. I'm gonna give you one tactic you can use to destroy nearly every argument for abortion. This is your go-to episode for defending your pro-life beliefs and debunking pro-choice arguments. By the end of this episode, you'll be a pro-life apologist. Now, let's abort some pro-choice arguments. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Welcome to Unaborted with Seth Gruber. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Again, I hope you and your family are staying safe and healthy and making the best of this very difficult and frustrating time for all of us amidst this nationwide shutdown. Well, we want to take a break from our normal episode that this show does each week, which is typically examine what's happening in the country politically and culturally on the issue of abortion and do an episode that I've wanted to do for a while. And we're entitling this one Aborting Pro-Choice Arguments to take a look at some of the most common arguments for the pro-choice position that you probably encounter a lot in your life and that maybe you always haven't been prepared to respond to as persuasively or uh, um, graciously as you would like to. So um, I I understand a lot of these arguments because I speak all across the country to a lot of Christian young people, to a lot of secular young people on university campuses, as well as in um, conferences and youth groups and fundraisers. And I hear the questions from students all the time that they don't know how to respond to. And I want to talk to you a little bit about why I believe that young people in particular um, are so unable to offer a defense for their pro-life beliefs or why Christian young people are increasingly identifying or finding sympathy with pro-choice arguments. Why is it um, that more and more young people are either identifying with a pro-choice position or a pro-life, but can't defend their beliefs in any meaningful way. Well, I think there's a few reasons for that. I think we are all impacted heavily by the culture that we live in and are a part of. We're all swimming in the same cultural stream. Some of us are swimming upstream, some of us are dead in the water, and some of us are just going along with the cultural trends. But we're all a product of our culture, and culture impacts us in a very significant way that sometimes we don't even realize. And so the pro-abortion culture that has been built for almost 50 years has had a very significant impact on generations of individuals, many of whom are adults now, and of young people who have been told by all of the respected sources of authority in their lives, except maybe their parents, that abortion is empowering for women. It's very hard to pull up those cultural roots that have been growing in the souls of students' hearts for nearly their entire life. Another reason is that public schools are not doing a good job adequately teaching the science of embryology, that life begins at the moment of conception. And from that point, it's a distinct living and whole human being. And public schools don't do anything to review the pro-life position and offer the best arguments that pro-life advocates offer in defense of their position. Another reason why young people and many pro-life individuals who feel strongly about their pro-life position but don't know how to respond to pro-choice arguments is because most Christian parents don't do anything about abortion in their personal personal life and are themselves not equipped to defend their beliefs. So naturally, their their children are not either. And lastly, churches are virtually silent on the killing of the unborn. And that is the primary contributor to the problem I find when I speak, particularly in Protestant and Catholic high schools and youth groups, is because the churches where these young people are being educated are doing little to nothing to equip them with a biblically sound and robust position, but also one based off of the facts, based off of the science, and based off of human equality. In fact, a new Pew Research Center analysis just came out um, recently, just last week, found that just 4% of sermons shared on U.S. church websites in the spring of 2019 discussed abortion even once. And when they did, it was rarely mentioned repeatedly. What does that tell you? That tells you that even in the 4% of sermons in the spring of 2019 of sermons shared online in America that mentioned abortion, only a handful of them mentioned it more than once, which means most of those sermons just referred to abortion, but it wasn't even a topical sermon on abortion in the first place. And this confirms my experience trying to work with churches and pastors who have never preached against abortion. So these are some of the reasons why even people who identify as pro-life have no idea how to defend their pro-life beliefs or respond to seemingly 
persuasive pro-choice arguments to the contrary. So consider this your go-to episode on defending your pro-life beliefs and debunking and refuting pro-choice arguments. Now, before we get to the arguments I want to look at today, I want to examine a fatal flaw of pro-abortion ideology, a fatal uh, misstep in their reasoning and a fatal fallacy that almost every pro-choice argument commits. And I want you to be aware of it so that you can begin recognizing the flaws in the vast majority of arguments for abortion so you're able to respond persuasively. Because the pro-abortion movement has to defend the indefensible, namely the killing of babies, their arguments frequently commit intellectual fallacies because it is indeed difficult to defend the indefensible. However, there is one that they commit nearly every time they open their mouth, and that fallacy is called begging the question. What does this mean? When you beg the question, you assume the very thing that you must prove for your argument to work in the first place. So for example, if I were to ask you, have you stopped beating your brother yet? Now, obviously, I'm trying to prove that you beat your brother, right? Because I'm saying, have you stopped beating your brother? But what have I assumed? I've assumed that you beat your brother by asking you, have you stopped doing it? The assumption is that you used to do it or that you still do it. So I put you in an intellectual trap. It's a very difficult position to get out of because if you say, yes, I stopped beating my brother, then you've admit, admitted that you used to beat him. And if you say, no, I haven't stopped beating my brother, then you're admitting that you're still beating him. So I've assumed that you beat your brother, but I'm trying to prove that you beat your brother. So I begged the question. Pro-choice arguments do this all the time. They assume that the unborn child is not a full human, but they never prove it. They merely assume it within the course of their rhetoric. But that's what the entire debate is centered around, isn't it? Is the unborn a human being like you and I? That's what the whole abortion debate is focused around. So the arguments of the pro-choicer that the pro-choicer uses to defend abortion would never be used to defend killing toddlers because we all know and agree that toddlers are human beings like you and I with the same equal rights. So I'm going to give you one tactic you can use in almost every argument for abortion to expose the begging the question fallacy, completely destroy the argument's credibility, and put yourself in the driver's seat of the conversation. But first, we're offering a new feature on this show here at Unaborted. Starting uh, soon, we'll start be taking your questions on the show, going through these questions uh, live so that you can get answers to questions you might have related to the culture, to abortion, to the abortion industry, and to the culture. Um, so if you want to get your uh, questions answered, email them to unaborted at sethgruber.com. That's unaborted at sethgruber.com. And we'll be right back with a whole lot more. Welcome back to Unaborted. So as I said, there's one tactic that I want to give you that you can utilize in your conversations on abortion that exposes this begging the question fallacy of nearly every pro-abortion argument and will enable you to put yourself in the driver's seat of the conversation to focus a question around abortion back to the only question that matters, which is the status of the unborn. And that tactic is called trotting out the toddler or trot out the toddler. And simply, you replace the unborn child in the argument with a toddler and then repeat the pro-choice argument back to your friend and see if they accept their own rationale for the killing of toddlers that they accept for the killing of the unborn. Does the pro-choice argument for killing the unborn also work for killing the toddlers in our midst? And nearly always the question is no. If not, then the pro-choice person has assumed that the unborn child is not a human being like you and I. So for example, someone might tell you, well, hey, pro-life bigot, you need to keep abortion legal and you shouldn't be invading in a woman's decision to get an abortion because that's a privacy concern. That's her own private life and decision that only she should be making with her significant other, her spouse, or maybe her family members. And how dare you intrude in that private decision-making process on such a private issue that has to do with her sexual lifestyle? Okay, very well. We can simply ask the question, should parents be allowed to kill their toddlers as long as they do so in the privacy of their own homes? That's a privacy concern. Hey, pro-choicer, how dare you intrude into the living room environments where spouses discuss whether they're going to slit the throat of their toddlers? That's a private family decision that should best be left to parents' own conscience. 
No one's going to accept that form of argumentation, but you've used the same privacy argument for abortion and simply swap the unborn child with a toddler, and nobody thinks that that's okay. So the pro-choicer won't accept his own argument for killing toddlers that he does accept for killing unborn children. So he must prove that the unborn is not a human being. Within the course of his rhetoric, he's assumed that the unborn child is not a human being. So you can use trot out the toddler to force the pro-choice advocate to answer the only question that matters in the abortion debate, which is what is the unborn? By the way, here is the... Here is why the question, what is the unborn, is the central question in the issue of abortion. It's not about privacy. It's not about financial concerns. It's not about rape or incest. It's not about government intrusion. It's not about enforcing morality. It's not about dangerous back alley abortions. It's about what is the unborn. As my friend and colleague, Greg Kokel, a Christian apologist and author, says, I want you to imagine for a second that you're standing at your kitchen sink cleaning dishes one evening. And as you're standing there cleaning your dishes, your three-year-old toddler walks up behind you. Now your back is turned and you hear little Timmy say, mommy or daddy, can I kill this? Now with your back turned, what would be the first question out of your mouth in response to your toddler's question, can I kill this? And everyone says, what is it or kill what? Exactly. Because if you turned around and little Timmy was holding a cockroach, dad might say, here, son, here's a hammer. Have fun. Don't tell mom. But if you turn around and he was holding the newborn neighbor kitty, <laughs> you're a little bit more hesitant unless you're a vindictive cat hater. But if you turn around and Timmy's holding his newborn sister by the throat, now you need counseling, don't you? You could never answer the question, can I kill this adequately until you first answered the question, what is it? The same is true in the debate over abortion. We can't honestly answer the question, can we kill the unborn? Because guess what? Everyone agrees abortion kills something. Until we first answer the question, what is the unborn? And using this tactic of trotting out the toddler, replacing the, the unborn in a pro-choice argument with a toddler and repeating their argument back to them will force them to examine that question, what is the unborn? Because they're going to have to acknowledge why they accept a certain form of argumentation for killing unborn children that they don't accept for killing toddlers or anyone else that is born. So I'm gonna go through a handful of pro-choice arguments today. And I've selected the ones I get the most, as I mentioned when I'm speaking to audiences. So I assume these are the ones that you hear the most as well. So let's start with the most popular one, the favorite argument of the pro-abortion movement and that is what about rape and incest? Because this enables them to pull on heartstrings such that if you oppose abortion in the case of rape, they're going to seek to make you as a pro-lifer look like some of, type of moral monster who's going to force women to bear what they call demon seeds or unborn children who have been conceived in rape and will seek to make you look like some type of unfeeling uh, monster simply because you don't believe we should kill babies conceived in rape. And this is their most favorite argument. So the argument goes that if a woman is raped, she shouldn't be forced to carry and give birth to that child. So she should be able to get an abortion because she didn't consent to sex. She was raped. She was abused. She was assaulted and she did not want to have a child. And so therefore she should have the right to get an abortion. Firstly, the first thing you have to point out here in conversations over this question is that this is a completely dishonest shame of an argument because the position of the pro-choice movement and the abortion industry is not that a woman should be able to get an abortion if and when she is raped. Their position is that a woman should be able to get an abortion for any reason or no reason at all through all nine months of pregnancy. But they appeal to the circumstances of rape to justify their position for all abortions, that's intellectually dishonest. And you can call their bluff by asking them, so are you willing to join me in fighting to end all other abortions that aren't performed because of rape and incest? Because you told me that you wanted to protect women's right to get an abortion if they're raped. So I assume that's the only case you want to protect abortion in. <laughs> and as soon as they say, well, no, I believe women have a, a right to an abortion, then don't appeal to rape victims and hide behind them to make yourself sound more compassionate when your real position is apparent. You believe a woman should be able to get an abortion through all nine months of pregnancy for any reason or no reason at all, period. Secondly, they commit the exception fallacy. They're appealing to an exception 
a min minority of cases to justify their position in all cases. And that's because abortions performed on women who have been raped account for 1% or less of the annual abortion rate in America. Not because I say so or some pro-life organization says so, but because the Guttmacher Institute says so. Gut Alan, Alan Guttmacher being a pro-abortion activist and the Guttmacher Institute being the st statistical research branch of Planned Parenthood. And they found in their studies uh, as to the reasons why women abort, that 1% of women cited rape as the reason for their abortion in 1987 and less than half a percent of women in 2004. So they appeal to less than 1% in the exception of case cases to argue for the norm, to justify their position for all abortions. Thirdly, this is a complete perversion of justice. And here's where we can start trotting out the toddler, right? This is where we take the reasoning of the pro-abortion argument and apply it to another moral framework and see if they would accept their same reasoning in a different framework. In what other circumstance would a pro-abortion advocate accept the murder of a child because the child's mother was brutally abused? I mean, that, that's what happens in rape, right? They're saying the baby should be able to be killed through an abortion. The mother should have the right to choose the death of her child because she was raped. Not because of anything that happened to the child, but because of what happened to the mother. In what other case would any pro-abortion advocate accept the murder of a child because the child's mother was brutally abused? You don't get to kill Timmy because daddy did something wrong. You don't get to kill Timmy because something ha bad happened to mommy. <laughs> that child is just as innocent as his or her mother and not, should not be forced to suffer for the crimes of their father. So let's trot out the toddler. Let's apply the you can kill a baby if they're conceived in rape argument to children who are already born. Should a mother be allowed to pay a physician to suffocate her newborn child if that child was conceived in rape? It's the same child. It was still conceived in rape. It's just not in utero anymore. It's not in the womb anymore. And obviously, a six-inch journey doesn't confer personhood. The birth canal doesn't confer personhood. So if you, pro-choicer, accept the killing of the unborn child in the womb because they were conceived in rape, do you accept the murder of the same child six inches later and one minute after it's left the womb? It's the same child. It was still conceived in rape in inconvenient circumstances. Can the mother pay the physician to suffocate that, chi that child? And every pro-choice activist says, no, of course not. Why not? Because the newborn baby is a baby. It's a person. It's a human. Ah, interesting. So the debate seems to not be about rape, but about the status of the victim, the status of the child. And you say it's wrong to kill newborns because they're children, because they're persons. So is the unborn a person with the same equal rights that you grant to the infant? Or are they an insensate blob of human flesh through all nine months of pregnancy? That's the question that you have to make your pro-abortion advocate or friend answer in the case of rape. So the question is not about rape, but about what is the unborn? Because the humanity that your pro-choice friend is granting to the newborn in your counterexample, they're denying that humanity to the unborn child in their argument for abortion. So he has begged the question by assuming that the unborn is not a human being, but they've never offered an argument to prove that the unborn child is not a human being. Furthermore, how many human beings are involved in a pregnancy that arises from rape? If you're intellectually and biologically honest, you'd have to say three, the rapist, the mother, and the unborn child, right? Those are the three parties involved in a pregnancy that arises from rape. So let's ask our pro-choice friend, who should get the death penalty? Should we give the death penalty to the rapist? Well, if anyone's going to get the death penalty, that seems to be the only person it would make sense to give the death penalty to. But by the way, rapists don't get the death penalty in America today. They don't. Now, if you rape and murder a woman, maybe you get the death penalty. But if you rape a woman, you do not get the death penalty in America. Furthermore, the rape victims, namely women, are not allowed to murder their rapists. Okay, so... Regardless of whether we should give the death penalty to rapists or not, we don't in America. Should we give the death penalty to the woman? Of course not. That's a horrific suggestion. She's an innocent victim. However, in some Muslim countries, they still practice the heinous and disgusting act of honor killings, euphemistically called, where they kill women, murder them, who have been raped because they have this disgusting culture of shame that tells them that if you've been raped, you should be ashamed, therefore we'll kill you. Thank God we don't do that in America because she's an innocent victim. So we can't or either don't kill the rapist. We should never kill the mother because she's innocent. So should we give the death penalty to the unborn child who's just as innocent 
as his or her mother. Well, if you believe in human equality, you have to say no because that's a human being from the moment of conception. So if a rape victim can't murder her rapist who is guilty, why should she be able to murder her unborn child who is just as innocent as she is? If you believe in human equality, you ought to embrace the position that no innocent human being ought to be unjustly killed by others. If you want to learn more about this objection to the pro-life position from rape, I wrote a helpful article on my website, SethGruber.com, entitled, Saying We Need Abortion Because of Rape is Dishonest, Unjust, and Merciless. So if you want to learn more, you can check out that at SethGruber.com. So that's the first and most popular argument for abortion. What about rape or incest? But clearly... We can communicate and drive the point home that you don't get to kill children because something bad happened to their parents or because their father committed a crime. That is morally wrong, and it's a complete miscarriage of justice. Lastly, it's, it's helpful and worth pointing out that pro-life individuals are opposed to abortion for the same reason they're opposed to rape. Rape is wrong because it's intentional violence that's unjustified against an innocent human being, namely the woman. Why is abortion wrong? Because it's an act of intentional, unjustified violence against an innocent human being. So abortion and rape are wrong for the same reason. And if you want to be an advocate of human equality, the only position that consistently makes sense is to be opposed to both rape and abortion. So uh, we're going to look at some more arguments here that you'll be very familiar with. But first, if you like this show and want to hear more great content and commentary from the front lines of the pro-life movement to examine arguments like this and to know how to defend life, then head on over to patreon.com slash unaborted and become a patron of the show. Patronize this show. Give us a chance to reach more people, expand our production value, increase the number of episodes that we do, provide you perks and quality information and content so that you can stand for life and defend life at such a propitious moment in American history as we approach 50 years of legalized abortion and we're seeing a tidal wave building amongst pro-life individuals, amongst conservatives and religious individuals who are finally doing something about their pro-life position and taking action because of it. And we really need your help because the pro-abortion movement and the abortion industry make money off of the killing of children, but it's very costly to save lives. And the pro-life movement is spending tons of money that is very difficult for them to make in the first place to save children and to educate the next generation who will be the future electorate and posterity of America. So if you want to help us in that endeavor, please go patronize our show at $5, 10 15 $20 a month at patreon.com slash unaborted. And we'll be right back with a whole lot more. Welcome back to Unaborted with Seth Gruber. So let's keep rolling here. Another very popular argument that I'm sure you're very familiar with, and, and again, it's one of the pro-abortion movement's favorite argument, is actually sort of a twofold argument. So I'm going to say it in one sentence, and then we'll break it down into sort of the two different arguments that I want you to be equipped to debunk in a very clear way. So they say, if abortion is criminalized, well, women will get abortion anyways. They're going to do it anyways, even if it's illegal. So we should keep abortion legal to protect women from dangerous illegal abortions, right? And they're hark uh, you know, harking back to a time when illegal abortions were sometimes performed with coat hangers and it was very dangerous for women. So abor if abortions criminalized or made illegal, people are going to get it anyway, so we should just keep it legal, specifically because if it's illegal, women will get injured in dangerous back alley abortions, so legal abortion is safe. So keep, keep abortion safe, legal, and rare, right? The old Clinton era saying is that we want to keep it safe for women. Now, there's nothing safe about abortion because a child is killed in the midst, but they mean purely for the woman seeking the abortion. So there's a twofold argument here. One, there's the assumption that law doesn't impact behavior, so there's no point in criminalizing abortion because they're going to get them anyways. And secondly, illegal abortions are more dangerous for women, so we should keep it legal to protect women's health and lives. So let's examine the first argument or assumption there. And, I, and I'm sure you've heard this before, right? Well, outlawing abortion won't stop women from getting abortions. <laughs> It'll just make it more dangerous, so we should keep it legal. Yes, it won't stop all women, but it will stop a vast majority of women whose babies we will save by banning the practice. If you care about human life, if you care about protecting the innocent, then the inconvenience to the woman and not being able to kill her child is uh, a small price to pay for the life of her child that is saved. But this argument also begs the question, right? It assumes the very thing it needs to prove for its argument to work. 
Because we could think of plenty of things that are illegal, but people still obtain those things. They still break the law to do it, but that's not a good argument to make it legal. For example, outlawing rape hasn't stopped all rape cases. Newsflash, <laughs> but we agree rape should remain illegal, don't we? I don't think you could find a single pro-choice advocate who would argue for making rape legal because, uh, I mean, men are raping women anyways, even though it's illegal. Why? Because intentional violence against innocent human beings is wrong and ought to be illegal. And because the law is both a deterrent and a teacher, meaning that the law deters people from doing certain things by saying there's consequences. You could go to jail. You could have some of your rights stripped from you. Right? If you're a drunk driver, you might not have your license. There are consequences to breaking the law. So the law acts as a deterrent, but it also acts as a teacher. Over time, laws that say this thing is bad, so don't do it, actually do help formulate the moral compass of the next generation who simply assume that that thing is bad because the government has said it's bad. Now, whether we should believe that all things the government say is true or not is another question, but they assume that the government has a vested interest in prohibiting that behavior, namely because it's evil, and they trust that the government is correct in that analysis. But law does influence behavior. We understand this. So it's incorrect for the pro-abortion movement to assume that because women will obtain abortions even if it's illegal— Therefore, we should keep it legal. They're failing to recognize that law does influence behavior, or maybe they know it, and that's why they don't want to follow our line of reasoning. So, for example, Barbara Siska, in a 1981 study entitled An Objective Model for Estimating Criminal Abortions and Its Implications for Public Policy, published in a book, New Perspectives on Human Abortion, found the following. They found in 1981 that illegal abortion rates before Roe versus Wade, which was the case that legalized abortion, so prior to its legalization, illegal abortions ranged from 39,000 yearly to an outside possibility of 210,000 yearly with the mean or average of 98,000 a year. After Roe versus Wade was legalized, abortion was legalized in Roe versus Wade in 1973, the annual total of abortions soon jumped to over one and a half million abortions a year. So the mean prior to the legalization of abortion was 98,000 a year. The practice was legalized and we soon jumped to over one and a half million a year. Okay, so clearly the law did reduce abortions and the law did influence behavior. So that's the first assumption or argument they make is that outlawing abortion won't stop women from getting abortions, so we shouldn't have any laws against abortion. Yes, it won't stop all women, but it will stop the vast majority of women who will obey the law because they don't want to deal with the legal deterrence of breaking the law and therefore will save those babies' lives. Secondly, the second argument that's part of this pro-choice attack says that we should keep abortion legal because because if it's made illegal, women will be forced ooh, into dangerous back alley abortion clinics again, and they'll die by the thousands, right? They'll talk, you won't believe the bloodshed of women dying from back alley dangerous coat hanger abortions, right? And they're referencing the supposed infamous coat hanger abortions, like these two women here, in back alley abortion clinics when abortion was still illegal. Now, we have plenty of evidence and reasons to believe that this was in fact a lie, but some uh, some coat hanger back alley abortions, illegal abortions were, of course, performed, but the vast majority were being performed by physicians in good standings in their community who were happy to break the law to make a quick buck. But as a matter of fact, women were not dying by the thousands from illegal abortions prior to Roe versus Wade. How do we know this? Well, Bernard Nathanson, who was an abortionist and the co-founder of the National Abortion Rights Action League, one of the foremost defenders and organizations on the front lines of the pro-abortion movement, later became pro-life and wrote a book entitled Aborting America. And in that book, he acknowledged that he and the abortion rights movement lied about the number of women who were dying from illegal abortions. Here's what he had to say in his book after his conversion. He said, when we spoke of the number of deaths from illegal abortions, it was always 5,000 to 10,000 a year. 
I confess that I knew the figures were totally false, and I suppose the others did too, but in the morality of our revolution, it was a useful figure, widely accepted. The overriding concern was to get the laws eliminated, meaning pro-life laws, and anything within reason that had to be done was permissible. So he says, we just fudged numbers and made up big numbers that would be scary enough to move people to oppose pro-life laws because they didn't want to deal with the consequences of a bunch of dead women who were getting illegal, dangerous back alley abortions. And he continues in his book and he says, in 1967, the federal government listed only 160 deaths from illegal abortions. In the last year before Roe v. Wade, 1972, the total was only 39 deaths in, in America in 1972 from women who died from back alley illegal abortions. So when they're referencing back to this, this massive bloodbath of women who were dying from illegal back alley abortions and, hey, do you want to go back to those times pro-lifer? All of those numbers are a complete lie. And we know it because the man who was helping fabricate the numbers to scare people into opposing pro-life legislation says so. But this argument that we need to keep abortion legal because if it's made illegal, women will be forced into dangerous back alley abortion clinics is tantamount to saying the following, right? So this is our version of trotting out the toddler. We're not going to apply it to a toddler, but we're going to apply it to a different moral context, but utilize the same reasoning and see if any pro-choice individual would accept their own reasoning applied to a different moral context. This argument is tantamount to saying that because some people die trying to kill others, the state should make it safe and legal for them to do so, right? So let's fill in the details of that sentence. Because some people die, who would be some people die? The, the pregnant women getting the abortion. Because some people die trying to kill others. Who's others? Their unborn children. Because some women die trying to kill their unborn children. The state should make it safe and legal for them to do so. Let's see if we would accept that phrase. Because some people die trying to kill others, the state should make it safe and legal for them to do so, to any other context and see if we would accept that form of argumentation. So for example, let's say a couple individuals are roaming around your city robbing banks, and they've successfully robbed two banks and gotten away with the cash. This weekend, they're attempting to rob a third. And in the midst of running helter-skelter from the bank, a law-abiding citizen pulls out his concealed carry and shoots one of the bank robbers in the leg. One of, the, uh, one of the criminals gets away with a bunch of cash and leaves his buddy bleeding out on the sidewalk. Now, let's say the ACLU comes to defend the rights of the bank robber and says, you know, we really need to have a nationwide conversation about legalizing bank robbers, bank robbery, to protect the lives of bank robbers. I mean, look at this bank robber. He was injured, almost died in the process of doing something illegal, robbing banks, and immoral, stealing from others. So therefore, we need to legalize bank robbery to protect the lives of bank robbers. Nobody would accept that form of argumentation for legalizing bank robbery. What a stupid thing to suggest. But it's the same reasoning. Because some people die or get injured in the process of doing something illegal and immoral, the state should make it safe and legal for them to do so. Of course not. Furthermore, this argument that we need to keep abortion legal because if it's made illegal, women will be forced into dangerous back alley abortion clinics where, where they will die from coat hanger abortions is an incredibly sexist argument, an incredibly low view of women to assume that even when facing the prospect of jail over obtaining an illegal abortion, that women will still choose dangerous illegal abortions to kill their child rather than embrace motherhood or choose adoption is an incredibly sexist perspective. To believe so little in women and give women so little dignity and inward strength of soul that they're just going to be ooh, forced into dangerous back alley abortion clinics is incredibly sexist. Who's forcing them? No one. The vast majority of abortions are not forced, maybe pressured sometimes, but for the most part, women choose abortion because it's what they want. No one's forcing them. So they're choosing it themselves. So what a low view of women that the pro-abortion movement has to use that type of language, that women will be forced into dangerous back alley abortion clinics. The pro-life movement has a far higher view of women, which is that when faced with the moral conflict of considering choosing an illegal abortion that breaks the law and violates the moral natural law of killing your unborn child, that most women will choose life and embrace motherhood, or at the very least, choose adoption. The pro-life movement has a higher view of women. 
and views them as far stronger individuals than the pro-choice movement do, who views them so weakly that they think that they're going to be forced into choosing the death of their child illegally against uh, state and national legislation. So that's how we can debunk that uh, that argument and expose their their fallacies of begging the question of accepting arguments for killing the unborn that they wouldn't accept for killing any other born person because they're assuming that the unborn is not human without proving it. Fifthly, and or rather th uh, thirdly here in, in this third argument I, I want to look at with you, we're often told that pro-lifers or the government shouldn't be enforcing morality. Right. So so that if you are personally pro-life and you believe abortion is wrong, that's fine. But you shouldn't be imposing that form of morality, that personal opinion on others who might want to choose abortion. So the argument goes that pro-lifers and the government shouldn't enforce morality. And if Christians or religious people want to be pro-life, fine, but don't impose your morals on me. This is an argument from relativism. This is an argument that assumes that when it comes to moral issues like abortion, there is no objective truth. Everything is merely subjective, personal feeling, contrived based off of what I feel and think. There is no objective moral code that we're all beholden to. It's merely your truth. But there is no such thing as your truth. There is the truth, and then there's your opinion. But it's interesting that they tell us not to impose our moral beliefs on others. I have an interesting question. Here's a question you can ask your pro-choice friend. Do you believe it's wrong for people to impose their moral views on others? And they're going to say, yes, yes, stop imposing your moral pro-life belief on me. Interesting. Then why are you imposing your moral view that we shouldn't impose moral views on me? I thought we weren't supposed to do that. <laughs> the view that we shouldn't impose moral beliefs is a moral belief. So if we're not supposed to impose moral beliefs and you're telling me to stop talking about my pro-life position because I'm imposing moral beliefs, then you need to shut your trap because you're imposing your moral belief that we shouldn't impose moral beliefs on me. That's intolerant according to your own ideology. So there's a little bit of irony when relativism takes uh, uh, plants its seeds in the souls of young people. But the very cowards who insist that pro-lifers shouldn't impose their morality on women seeking abortions are happy to impose their morality on unborn children who can't defend themselves. Very brave. It's very easy to say you're just exercising your morality, your truth, when the victim of your morality can't speak up and say, I object. So pro-lifers shouldn't impose pro-life morals on pro-choicers because they object. But pro-choicers impose their pro-choice morals on babies who can't object. Oh, how brave of you. Yeah, you're a real defender of women's equality as you slaughter 500,000 unborn women every year who can't object, who can't practice their version of morality, namely that they would probably prefer to not be dismembered. And we know that because they try to escape the forceps that you paid a physician to dismember them with. But this argument also begs the question. For example, I could argue that I believe toddlers are not persons and therefore I should have the right to torture them for fun. And you can't impose your anti-toddler torturing position on me. Don't impose that position on me. This is my truth, my belief, and I should have the freedom to exercise that familial private right. But of course, everyone says, no, that's wrong because toddlers are persons. Exactly. If the victim in question is a human person, then it's objectively wrong to mistreat them. If you believe in human equality, if you believe in the founding ideals of this country that are supposed to be self-evident, namely that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain, uh, you know the thing, <laughs> as Joe Biden said, certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And if you don't believe in the right to life, you don't have any other right. So if you believe in that, then of course you're going to oppose my ridiculous contrived position in this thought experiment that I should be able to torture toddlers for fun because that's my personal moral belief. Everyone understands that that's objectively wrong because the victim in question is a human person with equal rights. So what is the unborn? Are they an equal person? with human rights, or are they merely a blob of tissue? The pro-choice movement will not answer that question. So they once again have begged the question in the course of their rhetoric. But when they say we shouldn't legislate or enforce morality, that's a completely inconsistent position that they're only using to attack pro-lifers. Here's what I mean by that. We legislate and enforce morality all of the time. 
We have laws against drunk driving. We have laws against spousal abuse. We have laws against arsony. And we have laws against theft. Why? Because we're enforcing morality. Particularly because when you break those laws, you're endangering the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness of others who shouldn't be the consequences of your botched moral compass. So the question is not about enforcing morality, but about whether it's a moral code that is justified to enforce. And we certainly believe that protecting the lives of babies from being killed is a law that's justified to enforce. But if that baby's in the womb... Then the pro-choice movement says, no, we shouldn't legislate that morality. Stop imposing your own moral views on me. Kill more babies in the womb. Furthermore, the pro-life position is not, strictly speaking, a religious one. But the pro-choice argument here that says, don't impose your moral beliefs on me, frequently appeals to the religious community in saying, you shouldn't be imposing your Christian worldview, your religious beliefs that you've arrived at because of your sacred texts on me. I don't believe in the authority of your sacred texts, so why should I be beholden to the moral codes in your sacred texts that I don't respect? That's their argument. But the pro-life position is not, strictly speaking, religious. The pro-life position simply says it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings without proper justification. Abortion does that, intentionally kills an innocent human being without proper justification. Therefore, abortion is always morally wrong. That's our case. That's our position. I'm not making an appeal to a religion or to a sacred text, but they castigate religious individuals as some type of religious fundamentalists who want some type of, of uh, theistic state where the government is enforcing biblical principles. No, we're simply saying it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings without proper justification, and abortion does that. Furthermore, it's pretty ironic that while Pro-aborts insist pro-lifers shouldn't impose their morality on women who want abortion. They simultaneously insist that they can impose their morality on pro-lifers by forcing them to fund abortions with their tax dollars and threaten them with career termination if they don't perform an abortion. Because those in the pro-abortion movement have time and again tried to sue or threaten with career termination pro-life OBGYNs and nurses who have moral or religious objections to abortion. So they're happy to impose their moral beliefs on us by forcing us to fund Planned Parenthood at the tune of half a billion dollars a year and coerce pro-life healthcare professionals into performing abortions while insisting that pro-lifers shouldn't impose their moral beliefs on women seeking abortion. Once again, radically inconsistent and cynical. We're going to look at one more argument before we wrap up this episode. But first, I want to tell you about an exciting opportunity for your local church. I've teamed up with my new friend, Sarah Vienna, for a pro-life church tour. Now, Sarah is an international speaker and singer who works in Romania primarily, defending the cause of the needy from the unborn to elderly, serving battered women, rescuing abandoned infants. And our I'm Alive Church Tour is named after Sarah's song, I'm Alive, a song from the unborn child in the womb to their mother and to the world. And our tour captures both the beauty and truth of the pro-life position. And speaking to the head and the heart and the whole person, this tour will win the hearts of your church for life while equipping them to defend life. So based on biblical truths, this church, this uh, tour can help your church create a culture of life in your community that fights to love our unborn neighbors and their mother, mothers and fathers. So happening this summer 2020 and now extended into the fall, given the coronavirus epidemic, this tour will fill up fast. So to bring I'm Alive to your church this summer or fall, email us at imalivetour at gmail.com. Imalivetour at gmail.com for questions and bookings. And we'll be right back with a whole lot more. <laughs> Welcome back to Unaborted with Seth Gruber. So let's look at one more argument here that we're going to quickly abort here and give you the ability and tools to defend your pro-life beliefs on these most common pro-choice arguments, often used, of course, to attack pro-life individuals. So this last argument we're going to look at is the circumstance of life-threatening pregnancies to the mother. So the argument goes that women need abortions in life-threatening circumstances. What if the mother's life is on the line? Come on, pro-life. Are you going to force her to basically sacrifice her own life because you care more about fetuses than mothers? <laughs> right? That's the argument, is that 
at least in the circumstance of when a woman's life is threatened, abortion should certainly be an option. But just like the argument from rape or incest, this argument is dishonest because the pro-choice position is not that women should have the moral and legal right to get an abortion if their life is threatened by the pregnancy. Their position is that a mother has the moral and legal right to get an abortion through all nine months of pregnancy for any reason or no reason at all. So to appeal to the life-threatening pregnancy situations that some women find themselves in, to justify their position in virtually all cases and it is incredibly intellectually dishonest. But what if the mother will likely die if the pregnancy continues? What if it's a very high-risk pregnancy where if it's allowed to continue, the mother's life will be on the line and maybe she will die? Is abortion justified in that circumstance? Well, I'm going to argue that it's not justified medically or morally. I'm going to argue that it's not justified medically because abortion is never medically necessary to save the mother's life. But this is one of the biggest talking points of the left and of the pro-choice movement, but I repeat myself, is that abortion is necessary to save the life of the mother in high-risk pregnancies. That's not true, and it's one of the biggest lies that the abortion industry has got away with. But it's politically expedient for them to say that because they know that they can garner up support with pro-choice moderates or squishy pro-lifers who might be willing to accept the premise that some abortions are justified, namely if the mother's life is on the line. And if that abortion can be justified, maybe we can move them into accepting other abortions that we believe are justified. So it gives them the opportunity to look compassionate while appealing to people who have some moral qualms with abortion, but they think they can win over by saying, but look at this mom, do you want her to die? Oh, so if she should be able to get an abortion for her life, maybe she should be able to get an abortion in other circumstances as well. That's the pitch, and that's how they're able to use this to make themselves look more compassionate. But abortion is never medically necessary to save the mother's life. Why? Because if you have to end the pregnancy to save the mother's life, abortion is not the only way to end the pregnancy. <laughs> Newsflash. You can either induce early labor or you can perform a cesarean section. In either case, you have removed the baby so mom's no longer pregnant. So if there was a pregnancy risk, that's gone because she's not pregnant. You didn't need to perform a surgical abortion intentionally killing the baby to save the mother's life. Makes sense? The Dublin Declaration, which has amassed over 1,000 signatures from OBGYNs, nurses, nurse practitioners, physicians, medical students, embryologists, and neonatologists all agreeing to this statement that abortion is never medically necessary to save the mother's life. Here is their Dublin Declaration on Maternal Health Care. They say, as experienced practitioners and researchers in obstetrics and gynecology, we affirm that direct abortion, the purposeful de destruction of the unborn child, is not medically necessary to save the life of a woman. We uphold that there is a fundamental difference between abortion and necessary medical treatments that are carried out to save the life of the mother, even if such treatment results in the loss of life of her unborn child. We confirm that the prohibition of abortion does not affect in any way the availability of optimal care to pregnant women, meaning we can treat a high-risk pregnancy without intentionally killing the child through an abortion. Correct, because you can induce early labor or perform a cesarean section. Additionally, we can almost always save the life of the mother and the child, even in pregnancies that threaten the mother's life. Even in high-risk pregnancies, we can typically now, thanks to medical advancements and living in the most free, prosperous, and advanced uh, country and society in the history of human civilization, save both mother and child. However, there is one circumstance, unfortunately, where we know beforehand or a priori that we cannot save both mother and child, and that would be called an ectopic or tubal pregnancy, right? And this is when the baby implants in the fallopian tube rather than in the uterine wall. Now, the pro-abortion movement is going to try to push the propaganda that life begins with implantation, but that's not true. Life begins with fertilization or conception, and then within a week or so, or maybe up to 10 days, that, that new human being who has already come into existence will travel down one of the mother's two fallopian tubes and implant in the uterine wall. That is how implantation is supposed to happen, and that is then where the unborn child grows for the uh, entirety of its prenatal existence. In an ectopic or tubal pregnancy, the unborn child implants in the fallopian tube. The fallopian tube is very narrow. After the baby implants, baby starts to grow. Left untreated, that fallopian tube will, will expand and stretch and will eventually burst, killing both mother and child. So you cannot save 
both mother and child in an ectopic pregnancy. So what do you do? Well, the pro-life movement has always has always held that it's better to save one life than refuse to do anything and lose two lives. We're not going to do nothing and allow the mother and the child to die. We're going to act to save one life. But is that an abortion? No, because abortion properly defined is the intentional killing of the unborn child. Abortion is intentional. It's not accidental. It's not like a miscarriage. It doesn't happen spontaneous. You don't just find yourself on a surgical abortion table in Planned Parenthood. You got to schedule the the appointment. You got to show up. Everything is intentional in an abortion. When you remove the baby from the fallopian tube to save the mother's life, that's not an abortion. How do I know this? Because there are actual different surgical procedural names for the procedure that removes the baby from the fallopian tube. You either perform a salpingectomy or a salpingostomy. Either you you create a small incision in the fallopian tube and you remove the baby from the fallopian tube leading to the baby's death. Or if you can't do that, sometimes the physician is required to remove the entire fallopian tube, leaving mom with just one. Obviously, a more unfortunate circumstance can make it more difficult to get pregnant. But either way, while the child while the child will die, the intent was not to destroy the child but to save the life of the mother, which makes it completely different from an abortion whose intent is to kill, kill the child. So the death of the child in an ectopic pregnancy is a foreseen but unintended consequence. We foresee that the child will die, but we don't intend it. In an abortion, you both foresee and you intend the death of the unborn child. It's clearly better to act to save one life than refuse to act and lose two lives. So abortion is never medically necessary because even in an ectopic pregnancy where you can't save both lives, the intention is different. It has a different surgical procedural name because it has a different intent. So while the pro-abortion movement wants to send out the message that we need abortion when women are facing dangerous high-risk pregnancies, the reality is that you can induce early labor or perform a cesarean section. And if the baby's not developed enough, unfortunately, the baby will die. But just like the baby that dies in an ectopic pregnancy, the death of the baby that's delivered early is foreseen but not intended. But thanks to medical advancements, we can deliver many babies very prematurely to save mom's life and still save the baby's life because we're saving babies at such early stages. You may remember from President Trump's State of the Union address in January, he highlighted a mother with her baby Ellie, I think, who was delivered at 22 weeks and six days, I believe it was, in Kansas City, Missouri. It might have been 21 weeks and six days. Incredibly early. And they're saving preemies born at that stage of development in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, and those babies have a over 50% survival rate at that stage of development at that hospital where the nationwide average is something like 8% because this hospital is investing a lot of capital and talent into saving prematurely born babies. So even in high-risk pregnancies where you have to deliver baby early to save mom's life, we're saving even more of those babies. But either way, abortion is never medically necessary. And it's one of the biggest lies that the pro-abortion movement has used to try to garner up support with pro-choice moderates and squishy pro-lifers. Well, these are all the arguments that we have time for for today. Let me know what you think about this episode. Maybe we'll do another one with another five popular arguments and debunk them for you. This is your go-to episode to defend your pro-life beliefs. Go listen to this again and again and again, and you will be an expert pro-life apologist. Share this with a pro-life friend who's wanted good answers to these questions. Share this with a pro-choice friend who maybe has not heard good answers to these questions and might be intellectually honest enough to change their mind if they hear good answers. That's what we have time for for today. Thanks for for joining me. Head on over to iTunes, YouTube, Spotify. Give the show a rating and review. It really helps us reach more people because so many trolls try to drive down the ratings of this podcast. So do that for us. Again, consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash unaborted. And if you want to learn more and engage with me online, head on over to sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com to donate to my ministry, to sign up for my newsletter and get updates and information delivered straight to your inbox to view my speaking schedule and to ask me any questions. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unavoidable.